0: And it's interesting when you're putting a a passage together to preach through, it's always exciting to me to see how God orchestrates the Sunday morning service, right? We didn't get together and and collude on all of this. Um, God put it all together, and so he's here with us today, and we're going to uh, be focusing on Jesus. I I did do one thing. I asked Brent to put in the hymn, Uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and uh, I love that one. That's the one you'll go away with this week singing because it's got such a great melody. And it's going to really fit nicely uh, with what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer before we jump into God's word. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege it is to be able to share God's word from this pulpit. Uh, Lord, this is a, a wonderful place. And uh, Lord, it's not lost on me the trust that is placed in this pulpit. And I am grateful and thankful, Lord, for that opportunity. And we pray for Pastor and, uh, and his wife as they're on vacation, that they, it would be a restful three weeks that they're away and that they would come back to us uh, rested and and, and ready uh, for what lies ahead. So Lord, prepare our hearts now this morning for this message that we might walk out of here more like Jesus than when we walked in. And if we can even accomplish a little bit of that, Lord, we've been successful this morning. So we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You're to be commended as a church, and I say this usually about once a year uh, when I fill in for pastor on one of the Sundays that he's on vacation, I was a pastor for a lot of years in my church, and I was a big advocate of the pastor getting away, not for one, but at least two Sundays. Pastor's going to get away for three. That's even better. Uh, And it's important that you understand why a pastor needs to get away for a little bit of time. Because if you only give him one Sunday off, he'll, he'll, he'll think, you know what, I'll just get ahead. And so I'll work all week. And I'll, I'll get ahead because I got this whole week off. And, and then the next week, he's back in the, in, Monday, he's back at his desk and he's preparing for the following Sunday. And he doesn't really get a vacation. That's just a, a byproduct of being a pastor. But if you give them two weeks off, they spend at least one week on a real vacation and getting their batteries recharged. Three weeks is even better than that. So if you're here this week and I saw a few hands go up for the first-time visitors, look, I've done it before. Uh, Megan and I were in the Navy uh, for years and we traveled around. We'd go check out a new church and you're there the first week and it's a guest speaker. Oh, I'm sorry for you. But you come back in three weeks and you're going to catch Pastor Vradenberg when he's back in the pulpit. Uh, And again, if you want to get a good idea of what a church is all about, See who they have fill in for pastor when he's gone. That'll give you a real good feeling. Come back this evening as well. Uh, the Sunday evening service gives you a real strong feel for what the church is all about. Our passage today is uh, out of Revelation chapter 3, and it's a, it's a book that I've wanted to preach for a long time. Uh, I would say the better part of 20 years I've wanted to preach this passage, but in the last six months, the Lord's really put, in, put Revelation chapter 3 Uh, on my heart. I I couldn't get it out of my mind, and so when Pastor gave me the opportunity to fill in for him on this Sunday, I knew exactly where I wanted to go. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Uh, I want to start before we jump into the text this morning, however, to talk about the background and the history of the hymn we just sang, that What a Friend We Have in Jesus. I always love the backstory behind uh, hymns and songs, and they always add much more depth to uh, the song, the next time you sing it. But the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, was originally written as a poem, not a hymn. And it was written by a fellow by the name of Joseph Scriven. And Joseph uh, was born in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, his backstory goes like this He was uh, engaged, uh, I think he was 24, or 25 years old, engaged to a young lady the night before his wedding. His uh, fiance was killed in a tragic accident, and that 's hard enough uh, to comprehend can 't imagine going through that myself. but Joseph then was searching for life and uh, searching for meaning and In the next few years he de- think he decided to get away. he lived in Ireland he moved to Canada and became a, a permanent resident of Canada. but Meanwhile, back in Ireland, his mother, about ten years later, became ill. And so as a comfort to his mother, he wrote a poem, and the title of the poem was Pray Without Ceasing. Now, the first line of that poem was, what a friend we have in Jesus. And then he, in the rest of the poem, talked about casting our cares upon Jesus in prayer. So originally it was called uh, Pray Without Ceasing, and as was the custom back in those days, if you had a really good poem, the local newspaper would want to get a hold of it, and they would publish it, and so they did. And Scriven's poem became so popular, it was republished over and over and over again. Many people found it, they clipped it out, kept it as a, as a cherished uh, poem. And in 1866, a gentleman by the name of Charles uh, Converse, who was a musician, took, the hymn, the, took that poem and he put music to it, but instead of calling it Pray Without Ceasing, he simply called it the first line of the poem, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. We've all benefited from that for so so many years. The hymn reminds us that a friend, in this case Jesus in particular, is someone to whom we can share our burdens. A friend is someone to whom we can go to in times of sorrow. And a friend is someone whom provides comfort and solace. Not bad stuff. In fact, it's really good stuff. But today, we're about to learn that there's much, much, much more to this friend that we call Jesus. The title of this morning's message is, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Turn to Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read to you out of the King James Version, and uh, it starts in verse 14. And a little bit of background before I jump into reading here. This is the seventh letter uh, dictated by Jesus through the Apostle John to the churches. Uh, And it's a wonderful treatise, but Laodicea is the last church that Jesus addresses as he addresses these seven churches. And here's what he says, starting in verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful, and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot, So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him, and I will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Customarily in Revelation chapter 3, we kind of skip right to verse 20. And I've heard this passage preached many times. It's preached primarily as an evangelism passage because of verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anybody opens the door, I'll come in and dine with you and you with me. And that's a great evangelism verse. But it's a little bit, the way I've heard it over the years, it's a little bit of what I call copy-and-paste Bible. Now, last time I was here, I shared with you a message out of Proverbs chapter 31, and I called that copy-and-paste Bible. And Proverbs 31, as we customarily think about it, is uh, what does the ideal woman look like? Why do we think of it that way? Because we've heard it preached that way so many times, and we just copied and pasted the last sermon we heard or the last commentary we read— Every single Proverbs 31 ministry is a ministry to women. However, as we learned last time, Proverbs 31 is written to a young man to prepare him for leadership and leading his family. It is written to women as well, but that's not the primary focus. It's written to a young man to prepare him for leadership. Copy and paste. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 has become a copy and paste passage over the years, taught primarily as evangelism. Now, it doesn't exclude evangelism, but this is a a letter written to a church. This is written to believers. It's much deeper than just evangelism. It doesn't exclude that, but it includes so much more. So as written to believers, and it's written to believers as friends, a true friend would address another friend. And if you've got a true friend in this life, there's a certain way that your friend addresses you. Now, does God ever address us as friends? Which is uh, interesting and probably a whole nother study onto itself. But the answer to that is yes, he does address us as friends. Now, let me just take a, a pause here for a second and frame this for you. I'm not talking about the 21st century American adaptation of a friend where Jesus is just a big, warm, fuzzy uh, ball of fur that we just hug and he hugs us back. And that's not what I'm talking about here. In fact, a true friend is much more than just somebody that you lay your burdens on. A friend will share with you things that you need to hear. But does the Bible talk about friendship with God? It does. Uh, Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto a friend. That's interesting to me, that, that whole idea that God the Father spoke directly to Moses as a friend would speak to me, plainly. The next one is John chapter 15, and if you've got your Bibles today, turn to John chapter 15. Let me uh, read it to you, because I think this is a wonderful passage by Jesus himself. And in John chapter 15, starting in, uh, it's about verse 12, Jesus speaking, he says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. So the, the setup here is love. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that he may lay down his life for his friends. There's the word used. Ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. So there's a cause and effect relationship here. There is with every friend I have as well. Henceforth, in verse 15, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Verse 17, these things I command you, that ye love one another. Friends are close to each other. They serve each other, and they love each other. Each other, Yet there is more to a friendship with God through Jesus than just closeness and love. Jesus wants to teach us five imperatives about friendship with him in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Number one on our list is this. Let me see if I can get this one to come up. There we go. Jesus wants us to change how we think about friendship with him. Now, there's a difference between friends and acquaintances, and uh, Megan, my wife, and I have discussed this quite a bit over the years, and uh, she, in writing her, uh, uh, her work for her master's degree, actually did a whole lot of research into what a friend is, and so she's much deeper and more nuanced than I am on this. I'm a little simpler on my application of what a friend is versus an acquaintance, but there are subtleties of the difference between a friend and an acquaintance. Most of us Say we have friends, when in fact, we just have acquaintances. Acquaintances have three different categories that they fall into. Number one is this, you have things in common with them or they have things in common with you. You share likes, you share interests, you share hobbies, you share passions, you may share political views, you may share the same sense of humor. And when you overhear somebody, you think, oh, that's somebody that thinks like me, that's somebody I could talk to right now. And so in that first connection with somebody that's an acquaintance, they haven't become a friend yet, there's something that you have in common Number two on the list is this, there's shared experiences in common. You might have the same experiences in your background, like the same music. Maybe you attended the same concert together, or you're passionate about the same sports team, so you wear the same you know, baseball cap or the same team jersey. There's a connection right away there when you see somebody that has your team colors on. You may go up and talk to them and talk about how the season's going. You can just strike up a conversation with a total stranger. Well, that stranger now becomes an acquaintance. They may have traveled to the same places that you've traveled to. They may have attended the same schools. You have shared experiences in common. And the third on the list of acquaintances is this. You share similar views. They see life through the same lens. That was one of the things that moved Megan, my wife, from the category of an acquaintance to I want to be a friend with this person. Why? Because we viewed life through the same lens. We had the same sense of humor. We saw things the same way. I like to, back in the day, this is before social media and all the other ways that you can connect with people. I used to like to go to the mall and just sit and watch people. All right, I was a people watcher. I don't know about you, but I think there's something about just watching people. And I would think in my mind, I'm sure I was wrong. and A total judge person. <laughs> I was judging other people as I was watching them go by. Sorry about that, but I was. And, uh, but making up a story that I thought might be their story. I was a people watcher, and I liked doing that. It was enjoyable to me. Megan was a people watcher as well, and we would make the same observations about people. We found our sense of humor was the same, and we shared the common worldview. Those are all things that are wonderful, and they're great, and they make for really good acquaintances, but not necessarily friends. Now, a friend is different. A friend goes deeper. A friend is is much more subtle than all of that. Uh, Friends are, number one on my list, very rare. Very rare. This is my definition. All right? But I would say if you have three good friends in your entire life, you're blessed. Three good friends. Now, folks, I want to help you because Jesus is trying to help me through this passage redefine what friendship is really all about. I have a lot of acquaintances, but I have very few friends. Now hold on to that. Put a pin in that right for a minute, because I'm going to explain that here in a minute. But a friend will stick by you through thick and thin. They always level with you. They're not afraid to call you out. You understand what I'm talking about here? That's different than an acquaintance. Acquaintance won't do that with you. They, they, they're not always going to level with you. They're afraid to call you out. A friend, now a true friend, is courageous and they're faithful. And they love you unconditionally. And just like our true friend Jesus, they will remind you about how much they love you just before they say something hard to you. Go back to Revelation now in verse 14. I'm going to read down through verse 16. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful, and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, in that first verse, in verse 14, Jesus sets it up like a good, faithful friend, like a lifelong friend. And if your friend is going to say something hard to you because you need to hear it, they're going to remind you about how much they love you and how long you've been together and how much they've invested in the relationship and how close the two of you are and how much they love you. And they're going to say something along the lines of, you know, we go way back, don't we, the two of us? And we were, we were friends when we were seven years old, and you know, we, we grew up together, and you, know, you can trust me, can't you? You know I, I, I love you like I, I love my own flesh and blood. I, I'm with you to the end, my friend, and you, know, you might go, yeah, I feel the same way about you. Yeah, I really do, but you know what? Something's coming, isn't it? Because they're setting you up. That's not a bad thing. They're reminding you about who they are in your life. Jesus reminds us in verse 14 about who he is. He's the amen. He's the That makes it so. He's the faithful. He was there before the creation, right? And because of that, he knew you before any of this existed. He's known you longer than your parents knew you. He's loved you longer than anybody else has ever loved you. And he sets that up in the beginning. Why? Because he's going to deliver some hard news here in a minute. And now he's going to say to you, you know what? I wish you were either cold or hot. But you've become lukewarm. And I can't abide that. You know what? You turn my stomach. Now you'd say, that's a friend? Yeah, that's the best type of friend. Here's what a friend is different than an acquaintance. If your breath stinks, your friend will tell you your breath stinks, and they'll hand you a breath mint. A friend and an acquaintance will just turn around and leave, right? Now I know that's kind of a graphic illustration, but it's true. It is true. A friend will tell you what you need to hear when you need to hear it, and then they don't turn on their heels and leave. They stick with you, and they come up with a solution. More on that in a minute. So now in these few verses, Jesus sets up for us what he's, the bad news of what he's about to tell us. And it's important for us, I think, to understand what lukewarm means here. Because I, I always wrestled with this passage. I've heard this a bunch of times over the years. And I always thought to myself, well, isn't, isn't lukewarm at least better than cold? I mean, if we're talking about degrees of on fire for the Lord, yeah, I know he wants me to be hot, but, but does he really want me to be cold? I mean, he says right here, I'd, I'd rather you be cold or hot. And I've heard it preached that way. I've heard it preached where, look, the Lord would rather have you be completely against him, but he wants you to be completely for him. And if you can't be completely against him or completely for him, he doesn't really want you to be lukewarm about him. That's not what this is about at all. Think about a nice cup of coffee. When it shows up, you want it to be hot, right? And that's why we refill the coffee is to keep it hot. But once it becomes kind of lukewarm, you take that sip and, eh, eh. you know, could you, could you warm up my coffee here for a minute, right? Because it's, it's not as enjoyable as it was before. Same thing with a cold drink. You put ice in it to keep it cold. But once the ice melts and it, it gets a little tepid, it's like, eh, I can drink it. I don't, I don't want to spit it out of my mouth. It's just not as enjoyable as it was. That's what lukewarm is to me. Jesus is speaking about something completely different here. He's talking about that thing that turns your stomach, that thing that when it goes in your mouth, it comes right back out. Now, just, I want to see a show of hands. When I think about that, I think about a bad gulp of milk. Anybody ever had that experience? You put milk in your mouth and it came right back out, right? Now, forever, for the rest of your life, what do you do when you open up the milk carton? You what? You sniff it, right? So my kids, when I was younger, they go, why do you always sniff the milk? I go, you'll understand someday. (laughs) They will. I can't explain it to you. But when you take that gulp of milk and it's gone bad, wow, it comes right back out. Oh, and it leaves a terrible taste in your mouth. And you're like, I'll ne- that'll never happen again. So what do you do? You take the precaution, you smell the milk. And I do that. It's just a reflex now. Uh, and many of you have that, that same reflex. And my kids now all smell the milk because they've done it on their own. Right? That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about something that turns your stomach. It goes in and boom, it comes right straight back out. Jesus redefines friendship for us as something more than just a warm shoulder to lay your head on in times of trouble. Now, the church at Laodicea, Laodicea was an interesting location. Laodicea was uh, a major banking center, and it was a very wealthy town. Uh, it was in a very fertile uh, part of the country. It's in what's called present-day uh, Turkey. In fact, let me see if I can get a, a map to come up here. There we go. You can see Laodicea. Now, that you see how green that is? That was the main route from Egypt and, uh, and, and Israel ...up to what we call now modern-day Europe, but everybody had to travel through that region. So Laodicea was a banking uh, center, very wealthy town. They were also a textile industry center. Uh, They made a black wool flax that was highly sought after, very expensive really wonderful uh, fabric that they would put together there. And the third is they had a medical school in Laodicea that made a salve that treated people's eyes. Now you can imagine back in the first century, if you had eye problems, you couldn't just go to the ophthalmologist and get a prescription and get new glasses. If you had an eye disease, that might have meant life or death for you. So your eyesight was hugely important. It still is today, but it was even more important back then because there were limited resources. But this medical school had created an eye salve that people came far and wide to put onto their eyes to protect their eyesight. So Laodicea was a wealthy area, an important area, and a well-traveled area. Back to friendship. A true friend will not let you have it, or a, fr- a true friend will let you have it, Straight, unfiltered, and right to the point. And so Jesus does here in verse 16. Just like Jesus, they shoot straight, and they don't mince words. You've heard me use this illustration before, I'm sure from this pulpit, but it bears repeating. Um, Any of you who know me know how much I hate liver. Um, I can't stand liver. I can't stand the smell of it, the taste of it, the texture of it. I don't know why you would serve liver to anybody, even somebody that you didn't like why would you give them liver? Don't come up to me after the message and say, Steve, you just haven't had it prepared the proper way. I just don't like liver. If we were in a lifeboat together and starving to death and all there was to eat was liver, you would live and I would die. It's not going to pass my lips. Am I clear on that? Okay, that's how I feel about liver. Why do I share that illustration with you? Because Jesus feels about our sin the way I feel about liver, he'll never let it pass his lips. It disgusts him. It makes him spit it right back out. It's that visceral experience of putting something that is turned or something that has gone sour or bad in your mouth, and it comes right back out. There's no thought about swallow. It goes right back out, just like that. That's what Jesus is describing here in verse 16. He's not talking about us being on fire for him, or being against him. He's talking about something that he's going to describe to us in the next verse that is so repulsive, so disgusting, that he wants to spit it out of his mouth. And what is that thing that is so disgusting to Jesus? Well, in verse 17 now, he's going to start to let us know, "'Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest that thou art wretched and miserable and poor,' And blind and naked. And in the first part of verse 17, Jesus tells us this. We are wretchedly self-reliant. The church at Laodicea had become wretchedly self-reliant. And that was disgusting to Jesus. And it ought to be disgusting to us. Now he starts out verse 17 by saying, Thou sayest I am rich. Rich is not the problem here. Rich is a symptom. The real problem is the wretched self-reliance. You could fit any number of things in that description. You could say, I am rich. You could say, I am famous. You could say, I am intelligent. I know a lot of really intelligent people. I mean, off the charts, intelligent people. And almost to a person, all of them are atheists. They think they're just a little smarter than God. And because of their intellect, they don't need God. They are the definition of wretchedly self-reliant. They're going to get a big wake-up call someday. But meanwhile, on this earth, their intelligence, they think, carries them through. If you're rich, you think you have need of nothing. I've got lots of goods. I've I've got a comfortable leather couch. I've got a brand new car that's paid for. My mortgage is paid off. I've got a lawn service that comes out and mows my lawn. What do I have need for? I'm doing all right. It's that moment that turns into wretched self-reliance. And Jesus says, that's disgusting. Wretched self-reliance. You could be attractive or you could just feel entitled. The entitlement mentality is wretched self-reliance. So not only does Jesus want us to change how we think about friendships, He also wants us to know that friends always tell the truth. Friends always tell the truth. In verse 17 that I just read to you, now that we know how our sin makes him feel, we are next going to hear the truth about ourselves. Friends always tell us the truth about ourselves. They might remind you up front that they're your friend and you've been together for a long time and they've got your best self interest in mind and that they truly love you and as they do that they're they're setting it up because they're going to tell you something hard see we may think we're rich or we have many fine possessions or basically we have need for nothing but the truth is what jesus lays out in the second half of this verse you're wretched miserable poor blind and naked And this verse has been on my mind for the better part of 20 years. And I think it's an important verse. Because the Lord wants to remind me over and over again. When I start feeling pretty good about myself, I start feeling like I'm pretty important. I start feeling like I got things going, right? He reminds me, Steve, the real you I see is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Think about that moment if you realize that that's really who you are, if I was, if any of us were naked, we would fall down on the floor, we would try to cover ourselves, we would scream out to somebody, somebody get me some clothes, please help me. But it's worse than just naked because we're we're wretched and we're miserable and we're poor. And the Proverbs reminds us that poor people don't have a lot of friends. Rich people do. Well, probably a lot of acquaintances. Lots of people that come to their aid and help them because they think they can get something out of that other person. But but poor people, nobody comes around to help poor people. Nobody comes around to help poor people. So you might just be laying there in your nakedness trying to cover up and asking for some help and there's nobody coming to your aid. The real fact of the matter is, this describes us, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the truth. Now, why is this letter to this church included in the scriptures? I think that's a fair question to try to wrestle with at the moment because we could look at this, these seven letters written to these churches and as a, a kind of a breaking-off moment where we could look at the scriptures and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are. Or maybe it's something to compare to or something, a warning that we don't become like them. And it could be any number of those things, but it's included in the Scriptures. Remember, the Laodiceans, the church at Philadelphia, the church at Sardis, all those churches are gone. Those people aren't around anymore. they're, They're not benefiting from this Scripture. We are here today benefiting from the Scripture that was left for us to read. We need to take a warning. So why is this letter here? Well, these people are long gone. Are we supposed to just pity them or be thankful that we're not like them? After all, we do things right here, don't we? I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a moment where you begin to think that you're doing things right. And that moment eventually leads through the incremental creeps to a place called wretched self-reliance. So be careful as you walk down that road. But if you begin to think that you're doing things right, you know, you know what? We do do things right here. We wear a coat and tie to church on Sunday. A lot of other churches don't. They look like bums that just walked off the street. We preach out of the King James Version, the Authorized Version. We sing the old hymns here as churches ought to. We don't even hold out an eighth note longer than it should be held out. What's the point of a letter like this for us? Because it's easy, folks. It's easy to just, after a while, you're patting yourself on your back. And it's not the things that you do. All those things I just mentioned, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. It's not what you do, it's who you are. That's what Jesus is after. He's after who we are. What's the point of this letter today? Certainly Jesus doesn't want to spit us out of his mouth, does he? This letter's for us, my friends. You could just take Laodicea and write friendship on it, I suppose. The church in America is wretchedly self-reliant. And we here at Friendship Today should not be excluded from that list. Now hold on to that. Because you're going, this all started out as a talk about friends. (laughs) And Jesus and friendship. But you know what? A true friend, Jesus, our true friend, is going to tell you who he is, how much he loves you, how long you've been together. And then who is he going to deliver to you? The truth. And sometimes it stings. Don't lose faith, my friends. That's a good friend. If you've got three of those in your entire life, you're doing well. So Jesus, our friend, is rebuking us today. What a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus now changes how we think about friendship. Jesus tells us the truth, number one. He, he teaches us, number two, that, uh, uh, that friendship is... Uh, there you go, senior moment. I just preached it. Tells us the truth. Thank you. It's on the board behind me. And number three now, Jesus is a problem solver. Jesus is a problem solver. We've got problems, and there's no doubt about that. Jesus never points out our sin unless he's going to tell us what to do about it. All right, that's the difference between an acquaintance and a friend. Jesus immediately addresses the three main sources of our wretched self-reliance. Number one on Jesus' list is this. We need to opt for purity and wisdom and integrity for they are worth far more than riches. And so when he's talking about pure cold or pure hot, he's actually making reference to something that was back on that map I showed you a little while ago. Because right in, on both sides of Laodicea was a town called Heropolis and another one called Colossae, Colossians, right? Familiar with that? And so Paul, when he was writing to the Colossians, mentions the church at Laodicea. He knew there were problems already in the church at Laodicea. He addresses it for us before Jesus addresses it here in Revelation. But Laodicea was so rich that they wanted to appropriate the things that that Heropolis and Colossae had. What were Heropolis and Colossae all about? Colossae was known for, famous for their cold, fresh springs. So people would come from far and near to get buckets full of cold, refreshing spring water from Colossae. Heropolis was known for their hot springs You ever heard of Hot Springs, Arkansas? It's like a Hot Springs, Arkansas. It's a place where you can go and bathe in these natural hot baths. Who doesn't like a hot tub? It's refreshing. It's relaxing. It's welcoming. And so Heropolis was all about that. So people would travel for a long distance to go to both of these places for the pure cold and the pure hot. And Laodicea thought, we want in on some of that. So 35 years before this book was written in Revelation— uh, there was an earthquake, and Laodicea was leveled. Laodicea was so rich, they rebuilt the entire town and the church based on their own wealth. That's how wealthy they were. And at the same time, they built an aqueduct system from Heropolis and from Laodicea, miles away, to pipe in the cold water from Colossae and to pipe in uh, hot water from Heropolis. Can you imagine what that hot water was like by the time it got all the way to Laodicea? It was full of sludge, it was lukewarm, and it was nasty. Can you imagine what that cold, refreshing spring water was like by the time it traveled through all those pipes to get all the way to Laodicea? It was lukewarm, it was full of sludge, and it was nasty. That's what Jesus is making reference back to. He said, you see what your riches have gotten you? You see what your wretched self-reliance has gotten you? It's gotten you nothing but lukewarm, sludgy water that's awful. And no, nobody wants it. They want to spit it out of their mouth. And you're patting on your back, yourself on the back saying, Look what we've done. Really? Go to Heropolis if you want the hot water. Go to Colossae if you want the cold water. But Laodicea, I want to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus wants us to opt for purity and wisdom and integrity. Because they're worth far more than riches. Just read the Proverbs. Gold now is next. Gold refined by fire is pure. So why does Jesus make reference in verse 18 to gold refined by fire? Didn't Laodicea have enough gold of its own? Yeah, it had earthly gold. But it didn't have the pure gold, the gold that was refined by fire. It didn't have the gold that had no impurities in it. And Jesus says you need to seek after righteousness and wisdom and those things that are pure. Those things have integrity Jesus is never about mixing a little bit of bad in with a little bit of good. No, Laodicea was, but Jesus is not about that. So we are to turn to God and ask for the pure, righteous things of the word of God and embrace those things as important, much more so than any sort of earthly riches. And it's wise. It will hold its value forever. And second on this list out of verse 18 is this. Do what's right no matter the cost. Black and white are as sharp a contrast as you can possibly come up with. Black wool had made Laodicea rich but foolish. It had made him rich but foolish. You are in fact naked, he says to them, and don't even realize it. Clamor, he says. Be zealous, he says in the next verse. For righteousness, God's character. Righteousness is one of those $5 religious words that we use over and over again. What does it mean? It means God's character. Honesty, integrity, love, respect, compassion, responsibility. All of those things are godly characters and we ought to be clamoring and zealous for them. You will never be ashamed or insecure if those are the things you clamor for. And finally, turning to Jesus to see yourselves accurately once you see that you are wretched and miserable and poor. ...and blind and naked. There's one thing to get your earthly eyes fixed... ...by coming to Laodicea. But there's another thing about getting your spiritual eyes fixed on Jesus. That's far more important. And so Jesus was all about those things... ...not the things that you can get while you're here on this earth. Then and only then can you embrace the truth Jesus tells us. Jesus changes our view of friendship. He is a a truth teller himself. He is a problem solver... But he also shows us that friends are courageous. Friends are courageous in verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. A true friend will receive rebukes in love. A true friend will chasten you. They won't hold back. They won't sugarcoat it. They'll tell you what you need to hear. If you have such a friend, you should run, not walk, to embrace them and eagerly repent. And there's some conviction in here for me, because I'm thinking about the times over my lifetime where I had a true friend that rebuked me, that said something straight to my face that I needed to hear, but I didn't want to hear, and did I treat them properly? No, I got angry, and I made them part of the problem. You can't talk to me like that. How dare you say that to me? If you're thinking about somebody right now that's rebuked you in the past and they did so because they were your friend and they told you something and just because it was unwelcome you turned on your heels and left them, you need to go back and get right with that person because that was a true friend that you mistaked for an acquaintance. Perhaps we have so few friends because we have responded in anger to their courage instead of repentance and contrition. And finally this morning, Jesus changes our mind about friendship. Jesus, number one, tells us the truth. Jesus helps us to problem solve. Jesus is courageous. But finally, teaches us, Jesus teaches us that friends are loyal. They are loyal. And that's the difference between a friend and an acquaintance. Friends don't dump on you and then disappear. Acquaintances, by the way, do. Acquaintance will get angry at you, they'll level you, they'll tell you what they think about you, and then they turn on their heels and they're out the door, never to return. That's how you know the difference between a friend and an acquaintance. A friend will say something hard, but they'll stick there with you. They won't turn on their heels and disappear. The, the acquaintance unloads in anger and off they go. Verse 20 now is that familiar verse to us that we use for evangelism, but now it has a different context now that we know the setting. Behold, he says in verse 20, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. This is all framed in the context of Jesus, our true friend, who has just rebuked us. He's just told us that we're wretchedly self-reliant. There is never a good time for bad news. We didn't want to hear it. It probably isn't welcome, but we know that he's a friend, and we know that he won't leave us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He is the loyal friend. And so with that being said, we need to take to heart what he told us and look at ourselves and reflect on ourselves accurately and look in the mirror of life as James reminds us to do. And when we look in that mirror, we're going to realize that we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And there's nothing more vulnerable than that. After having delivered the straight truth about our wretched self-reliance, our friend Jesus comes around to make sure that we're okay. And so he comes at the door of our life and he knocks. He says, hey, Steve, I I know we had some hard words the other day. Uh, You know, I know you're hurting, my friend. I I realize, I get it. Um, I'm here when you want to talk. You know, I'm your friend. Don't forget that. We go a long way back, Steve. I'm just out here. If you open up the door, man, we can, I can come in, we can talk. I think we need to talk some more. I'm just going to hang out here for a little bit until you open that door. Jesus is right there knocking on the door. We know who we are. We know those times where we get an unwelcome message. We're not in a good mood. We don't want to talk to anybody. But Jesus is the faithful friend that knocks on the door. And he wants to transform our current situation. Because on the one side of the door, on the me, on the self-pity side of the door, here I am in my own living room, right, that that I've made for myself, that I've set for myself. But once I open the door and I allow Jesus in, my one true friend, that room that was ordinary a minute ago now becomes the throne room of God. And I get to sit with him in his glory. He's the one that brings the glory into the room. And all I need to do is open that door. But like the perfect gentleman, he won't force his way in. He knocks, and he waits. He waits for us to maybe come to that place where we realize that what he told us was the truth. And instead of us turning our heels and running away from him, perhaps we need to open that door and embrace him. On our side of the door is self-pity and wretched self-reliance. But once we open the door, Jesus enters, and it becomes our throne room. Verse 21 then reminds us, To him that overcometh, Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I have overcome and am set down with my Father in his throne? That ordinary place that we live and we wallow in and we have self pity in now can be transformed into the very place that God sits. He knows it won't be easy, but to him or her who overcomes, and the overcoming is just simply grabbing the doorknob and turning it and opening the door. That's the overcoming part. To him who overcomes, you get to sit with the King of Kings in his throne. In verse 22, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the church. Here's the revised Steve paraphrase of that verse. Jesus would say to us today, Hey, I'm, t- I'm talking to you, not your brother or your sister, not your spouse or your neighbor. I'm outside your door, Steve. I'm here to talk to you. Will you open the door? What a friend we have in Jesus. So today, before we bow our heads and come to the invitation, we do this every church service. I want you to think about that door now in a different way. And maybe Jesus has spoken to you today about something. Maybe there's a a friend that you rebuked years ago, and they turned their heels and left, and, and but you didn't follow up with them. You just got disillusioned and said, well, maybe I was a little too hard. You know what? Jesus would follow up with that friend. Maybe there's somebody that told you something you didn't want to hear, and you turned on your heels, and you need to go back and get right with that person. Maybe there's somebody that falls into that category. Maybe today you're just realizing that you're wretchedly self-reliant. And that that wretched self-reliance looks like misery and poorness and blindness and nakedness, and you need a Savior to come and be straight with you today. That loving Savior that's been with you before the beginning of creation, the one that loves you more than anybody else, that's the man that's standing on the other side of the door and he's saying, hey, I know you're in there, and I know it's okay. Let me come in, transform your life. If you're here today and the Lord's speaking to you, that door today Is right here. It's right here. On this bottom step. You can come up to that door. Jesus is standing on the other side, he's knocking. You open that door, you get down on your knees, you have a conversation with him today. Is that fair enough? You're gonna have to beat me down here because I'm gonna be the first one down. All right. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege it is to have a true friend. And Lord, I think. My whole life, I've had a couple of three friends, lots of acquaintances. I don't mind having acquaintances, but Lord, friends are special. They're different. And on August 13th, 1978, I got introduced to the best friend I'd ever have. The one that looked at me for who I was. The one that loved me no matter what. He saw me as miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked, and didn't care. He just loved me for who I was. And he said, Steve, I got something for you. I got some white clothes for you. And I got some, I got some eye salve to help you see spiritually instead of those, those eyes that are failing you on this earth. And Steve, I need you to just follow me. And here I am at the door knocking. You can just open it up. And For these 40-plus years, I've been walking with Jesus. There's times where I wish he wasn't in my living room, but he is. And he's never been unfaithful to me. He's always been true. He's always been true to you as well. So, if you have a word that you need to share with him today or he needs to share with you, I'm just going to open up the stairs here for you to come down and open that door that Jesus is knocking on. So, as we, uh, Brent, let's uh, sing something. You come on down as the Lord leads.